Hello, everybody. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hi. Um, so uh, I'm Reggie, and I um, do a podcast called Brown and Out, where we speak with queer people of color in Vermont. And this is a special episode where we're talking to folks who don't live in Vermont. Um, but Jarvis asked if I would um, host a little panel here today and make it a part of my show. And I think that was a good idea. And here we are to do that today. Um, so, yeah, if you're all ready, I'm going to kick it off like I usually do um, with... <clears throat> hey, folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Um, today, we have a very special episode. We're recording live from Out Here, um, which is a celebration of black artists, artists of color, um, down here in White River Junction, thrown by JAG Productions. Big shout out to JAG Productions and Jarvis Green for continuing to uplift uh, black artists and artists of color in theater. Um, and today we have a couple of very special guests who I'm going to uh, let introduce themselves in one moment. But first, I'd like to do a land acknowledgement. And I'd like to say that the land that we are meeting on today is the original homeland of the Abenaki people. We acknowledge the painful history of genocide and forced removal from this territory, and we honor and respect the many diverse indigenous peoples still connected to this land on which we gather. Now, today, we're here with Nathan Youngerberg and Jalen Levingston, and uh, why don't you all tell the folks a little bit about yourself? Introduce and then give yeah. a little... Yeah, hey folks, this is such a cool podcast idea. Um... My name is Jalen Levingston. I am a director, primarily theater maker. I'm also a writer and producer, and I live in Brooklyn, but I am from Louisiana. Hello, I'm Nathan Youngerberg, and I just decided the other day that I am no longer calling myself a playwright. I am calling myself a storyteller. Okay. And Switch it up. I'm really excited about that. I am also from Brooklyn. From I live in Bed-Stuy, uh, but I'm from the Midwest originally. And um, I love everything Jag, everything Jarvis, so I'm happy to be here. <laughs> and we're very, very happy to have you here today to speak Thank with you. us. The first question today is, uh, it's sort of broad, um, and I'll let you interpret it however you like. The question is, what is a black story to you? <sighs> um, I'd have to say from my perspective as a black storyteller in, in the plays that I write, because I, I, don't, I don't specifically write plays that, I mean, all of my plays are rooted in black stories and black characters, but I don't specifically write black plays that have are constantly rooted in black challenges or black situations. I think for me as a black storyteller, I tend to enjoy just creating stories that may be um, reminiscent of, of a white play or different, you know, other plays of different ethnicities that have situations that are beyond just a racial setting or racial situation, but the main characters in the story just happen to be black because that's the focus that I have in wanting to really um, put out images and um, scenarios that maybe we don't normally see. Um, for example, my, my play East Side's Table, which is getting a world premiere 
at JAG. It's a co-production between JAG and Cherry Lane in New York. The first leg is going to be uh, here at, at Briggs in October. Um, it's a play that really focuses on the humanity of young black men, which is something that we don't always get to see. Um, and not focusing on, on violence and drugs and um, people who are trying to get out of a, a downtrodden situation. It's just people who we really get to peek into kind of who they are, what what brings them joy, like what their hopes are, what their dreams are. Um, and so f- I guess for me, in a nutshell, that's what that's what a, a black story would be. Do you feel that too often black stories are rooted in black suffering? Oh, yeah. I mean, we talk about this all the time. A lot of us in the black theater community in New York that there seems to be an obsession um, with black suffering in reference to the gatekeepers, which are predominantly white. And so we've had a big year this last last season. It was with black theater in New York, a huge year, like swept um, off Broadway, like Obie Awards and whatnot. But I feel that a lot of the productions that are getting traction and getting the resources do have a strong focus on on black suffering. And not to say that that should never be represented, but when that becomes the predominant theme, I just think that there is no room for hope and there is no room for joy and there is no room for growth and healing. Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I, I I think I have a like a super broad definition for what a black story is. To me, a black story is a story that is told or written by a black person. Um, but I think what makes the question complicated is the exact thing that you were just talking about. Um, and I always think of it like when black stories become white theater which is a different thing. And what I mean by that is making work, no matter if it's a black person or not, with the assumption that who you are writing for is an all-white audience or who you're writing for is an all-white institution. That even if a black person writes that, it doesn't make it not a black story, but it does create a particular kind of theater that feels unblack to me because it uh, seems to center an experience that is not predicated on what either the play is about or the kind of people that the play is um, trying to illuminate. Um, And... That, I think, contributes a lot to the prevalence of theater in New York that is exclusively about black pain or black suffering, because I feel like the goal of that kind of theater, at least right now in New York, is to educate white audiences, which is um, maybe not inherently wrong. It's just a ministry I am not as interested in. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, When do you feel most affirmed in the theater, both on stage and in the audience? So I suppose that's two questions. Um, But yeah. Well, I can't answer the first part because I don't perform. So I'm going (laughs) to decline to answer that one. Um, But I would say in the audience or as an audience member and that's what is that what the question is to mean like the first part of it on stage meaning um, as a performer? Oh, it, i suppose yeah if you if you were a performer yeah, okay um 
what would uh, what's an affirming moment for you? Got what does it. that look like? Okay. But you can speak from your experience. Yeah, um, I'll speak as an audience member. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think it happens before I even go to the theater. I think it happens when. I make a decision as to whether or not I'm going to go support something. And I've been having a lot of discussions lately about audience development and community outreach and how that is um, botched so often by a lot of these white institutions. Um, But I can say that when when I see something that clearly, again, pre-going to the theater, clearly speaks to me and resonates with me as a black creative person and just as a black person in general i feel so appreciative and i feel so connected to the piece already before i even go and then when i get there in the audience and then if the piece to me feels authentic and feels um like it's speaking in such a way similarly to what you were saying that it it isn't written to to educate white people or isn't a black play written specifically to entertain a white audience, but it's just an authentic black play, I feel satisfied and seen in a way that I can't quite articulate because it very rarely happens. But it's interesting how um, art is marketed. Yeah. Um, And to whom and why. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, I've been having a lot of discussions with people about how it's not rocket science to um to as to to make black audiences or other and i can't speak for other ethnic groups but just as a black person to make us feel validated in the audience it's not rocket science you know and i i can't quite wrap my head around why it's so complicated you know and i know that people spend hundreds of thousands of million and millions of dollars on you know rolling out these these plans and these marketing um concepts and whatnot and i'm like you could just pay us each ten thousand dollars and we'll come talk to you for an (laughs) afternoon and we can tell you straight up like what really needs to happen Mm. and if you want to commit to that we'll come in every week and meet with you Mm. you know um so yeah i very rarely feel validated as a as a, a black audience member i usually end up feeling isolated um frustrated and i know a lot of other people too who are like to be more vocal during um their theater experience have been shunned you know in in that i I don't i'm pretty quiet when i go watch anything and i kind of internalize everything but i've heard of that happening many times too and um yeah so i mean i think it's just such a great point that you're making about like you know whether or not you're going to be affirmed or validated before you even walk into the theater. And I think oftentimes I just think about this question in terms of like once I'm in the seat, but it's so true that it happens so much further uh, from just that moment. And I mean, it is so easy, the answer to the question. And I think something that we talk about all the time that I've said before is just until these institutions are afraid of our absence nothing will change. And so, so long as they are trying to 
uphold a certain kind of status quo and then have their cake and eat it too like it's a sacrifice it's either you want your theater to look like an american theater or you don't and there is no in between and so if you don't radically choose to make your theater look like an american theater it just won't it will look like a subscriber base that is a very particular specific demographic and until institutions are afraid, which I feel like fear is such an unusual motivator for change, and I probably wouldn't usually speak uh, about fear in that way, but until you are afraid that I will not be there, then nothing will change. And I think all of the moments that I feel most affirm is when I know that show was made so that I walked in the theater. And, that sh- and it can look like many different kinds of things you know um but you know and you're so right you know before you even walk into the theater that they were afraid that i may not come and i'm here now and now the show can begin you know we we talk a lot too about when we came to jake fest this year they uh screened the lorraine hansbury documentary that pbs did which is brilliant if you haven't seen it and we talk about this all the time, but there was this one scene where I, it was the out-of-town tryout in Boston or Philly or something, and they were having a hard time getting black people to come. Although it was Lorraine Hansberry and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And finally, it's like it word got out to the black community and people started to trickle in. And they went up to this one woman who was in the lobby, I believe, and they said to her, what What made you come down here today? And she paused, and it was just like the most poignant moment ever. And she just said, I heard that this play, there was something in this play that had something to do with me, and I came down to find out what that was. And so every time I have conversations now about, you know, community outreach and audience development, I start, I lead with that because it's it's such a powerful but simple concept you know um and it really changed my whole perception of everything because i completely understood it so it sort of comes down to if um the playmakers care if the audience is reflected in their work or not mm-hmm. you know you have to want to yeah you know in the first place yeah care yeah um because it's a lot of work i mean it is a lot of work to when you have a system that is so focused on a certain age demographic and a certain ethnic demographic and socioeconomic to sell tickets yeah and then that it's been that way for so long and i think that people are so afraid to change anything that the system's going to break but the the problem is that they've been they've not been cultivating new audiences that are diverse and young as their mission statements all say that they do if you go on the mission statements of all these nonprofit theaters all around the country it's a it's a fucking joke. You know what I mean? I can swear on this. You said, you right? Absolutely okay, can. good. It's a fucking joke. Um, because they're not doing the work and there's going to be, there's going to be some type of consequences with this because the older audiences are dying out and they're, they're not enough people. And also now with, we were talking about this last night with streaming services and video games and stuff, younger people, aren't so inclined to just say, oh, I'm going to go spend money, even if they have the money to go see this thing when I can just sit and watch something on Netflix, you know? Um, so it's going to be interesting to see within the next 10, 10 years, even like what's going to happen when that gap just continues to widen, you know? Also mentioned that specifically in New York, 
even when I'm sometimes in audiences that are all black, I don't feel validated or affirmed all the time because specifically in New York, we're making theater for each other. Mm. Artists and theater makers and people with a certain kind of economic status. And so if I walk into a theater and even if they all look like me, if I know 50% of the people in the theater, there still was a level of outreach that was not done to reach out to the Bronx, to reach out to Harlem, to reach out to Brooklyn, to reach out to Long Island. You know what I mean? Like, I want to experience people who I go to the grocery store with coming and seeing these stories that, you know, my community works very hard to tell. And so it's not even just an aesthetic question. It's like, I wish there was more work done to make sure that the people of the community of New York City actually had access to stories. And um, I think that's a problem even in uh, more cultural institutions. What are some emergent or new ways you are thinking about process as it relates to storytelling? <laughs> I, I, you have a good one on this. Yeah, because we've been talking so much about, like... Even the good ones take a moment to marinate. <laughs> about dismantling the, like, status uh, quo and... Go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have become so disgruntled as... Uh, formerly as a, a playwright that I decided... Well, I, I consider American theater... I, I say it's like a woman that I broke, I'm breaking up with, you know, or a man that I'm breaking up with, I guess I should say, because I, I feel like American theater is so broken mm. and it's taken me 10 years, I think, to figure this out. Cause I've been writing now for 10 years. And I thought rather than continually be frustrated and banging up against walls and, you know, not getting what I feel I deserve and what I need um, to nurture and develop the stories that I have, that I am going to form my own company. That's where the storytelling thing came from. So it's going to not be a theater company. It's going to be a storytelling company. Um, and I think that's because we, we've been working on several projects together as director and writer. And I've been getting, and we have been getting really into kind of like the origins of storytelling and the power of storytelling and kind of the, the like primal storytelling and things like that. And I'm really interested and excited about kind of going back to the origins of what that means to be a storyteller and what, what you actually need to, to spin a good tale and tell a good story, you know? And so one of the, we're working on two projects that we're going to be um, producing and touring ourselves. And one of them uh, is a play about a black Franciscan nun named Sister Thea Bowman who died in 1990, but she was an extremely charismatic, radical, broke all these rules and brought into the Catholic liturgy uh, her all of her blackness, like including Negro spirituals and dance and theater and all this stuff. So in this play that I wrote called Thea, it's really rooted in oral storytelling and so I wrote what I had thought was just this insane crazy play but it just kind of focuses on a group of people telling this story and not requiring a lot of bells and whistles and everything that is included in the play all fits into a trunk that they carry and so as we started talking some more and I started having some more epiphanies and revelations about this I realized because one of the first one of the first um 
bits of information. Like I, I talk a lot in like receiving things and getting visions about things because when stories come to me, that's kind of how it comes. So I just tell it like it is. But when I got the first vision to do this a year ago, the information that came along with it very clearly as if someone was whispering it to me was that this was not to be created for traditional American theater audience consumption. And I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever that means. Yeah, okay. let me, I'll, I'll, roll, <laughs> I'll roll with that. So I, I immediately, you know, we talked about it and I was, my interpretation of that was that it could be a play that could be done on stage, like say at the Guthrie in Minneapolis, but then at the same time, there would be a production in a church basement or a community center in Oakland or a rec room in Paris or something like that. And that really excited me. Um, and then it wasn't until a couple months ago I stumbled upon, not stumbled upon, I, I ordered this book called All the Lights On, which was written by this uh, amazing woman named Michelle Hensley, who was the founder and artistic director of 10,000 Things in Minneapolis for 30 years. And she basically that's what she did she had this theater company where she was totally against doing theater for rich white people and wanted to create something where uh plays could be performed in homeless shelters and prisons and battered women's shelters and i i actually ended up talking to her the other day because i'm from minneapolis so i had like one degree of separation i got her on the phone and i told her when i read the first few pages of her book i was on the subway and i literally started weeping because it was a confirmation of everything that I felt that I needed to do to kind of create this this new paradigm that I felt that I had been called to do. And it it's exciting for me because it's something that it's not going to be glamorous in the sense of I think this career that I was chasing for so long and trying to replicate and desiring to kind of covet the careers of my peers that you you're so close to people and the next minute you see them skyrocket to fame and they're doing all this stuff and getting all the fellowships and all the commissions and I had to have a real kind of I say come to Jesus moment with myself where I'm like you know that stuff doesn't matter you know I I want to tell stories and I want people to hear my stories and I think that's one of the downsides of doing things the traditional way is that it can take forever like this play east size table you know was just, i think is a traditional amount of time typical amount of time it's been five years since i wrote this play and i have a thousand rejection letters and just doors slammed in my face and i thought if i have the power to just create this stuff myself and create a new infrastructure then i'm really doing my job I'm told you had a good answer. <laughs> I'm so, um, <laughs> I think I'm currently right now thinking a lot about what happens in a rehearsal room and how to decolonize a rehearsal room because it, just like any other workplace, comes with certain baggage. And um, I'm really fascinated in looking at, okay, what is the role of an actor in a rehearsal room? What is the role of a director in a rehearsal room? What are the things that we accept as status quo? And what are things that we can relook at? Um, you know, what, what are childcare options? for people who um, have kids? What are, um, you know, we have like these very strict, like kind of uh, ideas about time and how long a rehearsal should be. And, you know, is there a world in which actually we all consult with each other and we figure out 
you know, <laughs> how long we actually can. Can you um, imagine? Work. And I, I just got finished associate directing with a, uh, a, a woman named Rachel Chapkin who was pregnant. And um, so for her, she could never start rehearsal before um, 10 o'clock. Uh, no, 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 before 11 o'clock. And there was no rule that said we had to start at 10. There's just like this idea that we had to, right? And so just like really looking at like small things like what time do we get here? And like how many bathroom breaks do we take? And, you know, just little bitty things um, that can like open up a, a process. And also like really, really big things like how do we create a space in which what is being exchanged artist from artist is on a even playing field. And that to me is part of the work of decolonizing a rehearsal room. You know, if I am creating a show about slavery, which is true, I am working on a show about slavery and reconstruction. How do we create a space in which the white performers and the black performers are sacrificing the same amount of, uh, things when they when they come to the to the to the floor to play how do you it's a great question and that's probably another episode but (laughs) part of it is like being really really honest about the fact that we aren't typically doing that in the first place so to just have the conversation that when you see a 95 year there's a 95 year old woman in our show when you see a 95 year old woman almost magically uh, conjure the spirit of uh, a slave character and start talking about her day, it's not a magic trick. That she has lost something by doing that. And how do we figure out a way in which the entire room is sacrificing on that level? Like an artistic rigor that is actually equitable across racial lines is, I think, uh, something that I'm thinking about a lot. It's a big ask. Well, I commend you for doing that work. That's amazing. Um, I just want to offer some space to for you all to add anything that you felt uh, you didn't get to say already, and also to plug any upcoming projects you have. Um, I guess I could talk a little bit about my infatuation with, with JAG Productions and just kind of how... I think a lot of where I'm going and the new direction that I'm moving in has been inspired by a lot of the work I think that Jarvis is doing here. Um, just because it's it's almost like one of those things like this shouldn't be possible. Mm. And I get really excited about because I've always been one of those people that I'm like, well, if it's if it doesn't seem possible, then it's totally possible. and I'm going <laughs> to go after it and make it happen. Um But just like, you know, aligning with individuals like Jarvis, who I feel in the conversations that we have and then other people who are are mutual associates or um, collaborators in the same kind of circle, that having this feeling of dreaming as big as you can. And I remember when Jarvis approached me about wanting to do the world premiere of this play, And in the same month, the owner of Cherry Lane Theater in New York had approached me and a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, well, why don't you all talk to each other? Because maybe there is a way we can marry these two things together. And again, that probably to some people on paper seems like that's ridiculous and not possible. Like that's like two different realities, two different whatever. But um, 
it all came together, you know, and with so much enthusiasm and it's now going to happen. And to me, that's just uh, a thrilling to be able to dream on that high of a level and be supported and actually finally feel validated to be in these spaces, in these rooms and having conversations with people who are deferring to me. Whereas I was the one just six months, well, a year ago, like banging on doors to the point that my knuckles were getting bloody and nobody wanting to listen to anything that I had to say to be now in an environment where what I say actually matters and it's, it's important, you know? So I, I just, any chance that I get to come up here, like I'm like on that train or that bus because I just feel that it's kind of entering into like a, a magical realm that, that helps me get through all the, the bullshit. <laughs> um, and then uh, project wise, we're, we're working on another project, which is going to be part of somewhat part of this new company. Uh, I wrote a play called Mother of Pearl, which is uh, kind of in honor of like the house music scene. It's a love letter to the old school house music scene in New York. And we did a workshop production a couple months ago that was very successful. And so we talked about it because I decided I didn't want to run through this the traditional uh, American theater development, um, funnel. And we decided to find a freelance producer and we're going to align with, uh, corporate sponsors that pertain to the EDM scene and and music and whatnot. And we're going to get the funding that we need to tour this thing all over the world without having to rely on the American theater to get this thing off its feet. And, uh, we joined forces with the oldest living link to the at the nightclub dj scene as we know it to this day his name is nicky siano and he's 64 years old and he's still djing he's in london right now with a play that he wrote called hallelujah disco which is a, a play with music with a gospel choir that focuses on the creation of the disco scene which basically leads right up to when our play starts so we're going to join forces and bring this thing all over so i'm that I'm sounds wonderful super excited yeah so that's yeah i all the things about jack super true super magical if you're in this community um you should support it because it's so 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 important um and i am you know freelance director so i'm always in workshops or readings or Things and so I have a uh, a musical I'm developing that'll have a presentation next Saturday if you're in New York City by chance uh, at the Musical Theater Factory um, across from the Public Theater 440 Studios anyway um, and then yeah I, um, the workshops that Nathan and I are working on I'm also working on East Size Tables so I'm very excited to be back here next month to do that um a couple of projects uh that are in the spring and uh directing a production of i don't think i told you this yet uh (laughs) directing a production of um the normal heart in louisiana so that'll be cool tell us more about that uh it'll happen (laughs) next year and hopefully be cool stay tuned stay is what tuned. you're saying okay <laughs> yeah i can yeah, accept yeah. that as an answer cool all right well thank you so much Jalen. thank you so much nathan for um being on the program today and thank you so much jarvis green and jag productions for having out here um for being out here 
if I may. Yes. Um, and for everything that you all do, um, great talk, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>